people are much more likely to change if they realize that the other person could be right and you could be right too. And so it's more a matter of what effect are these words having? And if this isn't the effect I want, how could I talk differently to have a different effect? Hello, and welcome to the BBXX podcast, Let's Get Intimate. I'm your host, Sasha Lori, and we're here to challenge the way our culture has conditioned us to talk and think about sexuality, intimacy, and healthy relationships. To question everything, to embark on a journey of self-understanding, and to begin to rewire some of the backwards thinking that we've absorbed from the subconscious influences that have shaped us all. Our hope for you, and for myself, and for all of us here at BBXX, who are on this journey with you every day, is that through a better understanding of our own identity, of who we are, and why we are that way, we can form deeper connections with other people and live healthier, more fulfilling relationships as a result. Join us as we change the conversation and the culture surrounding intimacy and relationships. And remember that better relationships equals a better life. Today's guest is Deborah Tannen. Deborah Tannen is a professor of linguistics at Georgetown University and the author of countless books about how language in everyday conversation affects relationships. The importance of Deborah's work and the impact that this information can have on yourself and your relationships cannot be underestimated. And as there are just worlds and depths of knowledge to get into, it was truly quite a challenge to try and break off just a tiny piece of the iceberg for all of you to start your journey with this one interview, but I would thoroughly encourage you to take what you learned today and use it as momentum to continue to dive deeper into this sort of thing and truly start to learn more about not only communication with other people, but your own communicational style. One of the most interesting things for me in reading Deborah's work was realizing how much another person's communication style, and I think this happens often where people might be speaking with someone and they wonder, why are they doing this? Why are they doing that? Why are they communicating with me in this way? And to start to think about it from another perspective and the possibility that the way that people communicate with you is really just, what if it were just a reaction to the way you're communicating with them. And really to flip the coin over and to realize that communication in the end is so much more about ourselves than it is about any other person. So I hope that this interview opens the door for you and leads you into the fascinating world of communication that I myself am obsessed with. Next week, we will also be releasing another interview about communication. And so I really hope that this gives you some food for thought because even the smallest changes in communication can be truly transformational. 
So without further ado, here is our interview with Deborah Tannen. Thank you so much for joining us today. So excited to chat with you. First of all, as I was reading through your book, that's not what I meant. I was literally listening to to the lectures and I was just walking down the street. I found myself constantly walking with a smile on my face in how much I was learning and also just the sheer entertainment and the identification and kind of newfound understanding. It really gives you a new lens on all your interactions. And if not an entirely new lens, at least a completely new filter through which you're seeing other people, but most importantly, yourself. Because as you talk a lot about throughout the book, we tend to understand our interactions with other people according to their reactions, what we think their intentions are, and not the reality that a lot of the way they're acting could simply be a reaction to the way that we're acting and engaging with them. And so I first just wanted to have you speak a bit to why this work you do is so important and how exactly it's so important for all of us. Yes, and that's a great description of the kind of main point of that book. And it's a theme that runs through all my books. The basic idea that I talk about, I call conversational style. And what I mean by that is how we say what we mean. So when that book, uh, That's Not What I Meant, came out, a lot of people asked me, well, wouldn't this be a better world if we all just said what we meant? And I would respond, most of the time we do say what we mean, but we say it in our own conversational style. If you talk to someone whose conversational style is relatively similar, then the chances are pretty good that they'll understand how you mean what you said and you'll understand how they mean what they say. But when conversational styles are different, then all bets are off. Then there's a pretty good chance that each of you thinks the other means what you would mean if you spoke in that way in that context. But when styles are different, then that doesn't hold. And that book, That's Not What I Meant, is just, I try to break down what are all the elements of conversational style and how can they differ from one person to the next. And they can differ by a whole range of factors. The five big ones are ethnic background, regional background, the part of the country that you come from, age, class, and of course, gender. And that's the one that I ended up writing my next book about, the book called You Just Don't Understand. But all those things are varying along the very similar parameters. So just a couple of examples here. Two people are talking. Everybody agrees it's a conversation. And so one person takes a turn, then the next one takes a turn, then you take a turn again. But how do you know when the other person is done speaking and it's your turn? There are a whole range of things that we go by. We try to gauge whether the person has made their point. We gauge by their intonation pattern. Like when I my voice just went up, that's a signal to you. I'm still talking. <laughs> Not quite the time for you to come in. Although 
Often we do end our sentences rising, so that isn't foolproof either. But one of the big things that we go by is length of pause. How long a pause has the person left before you get the idea, okay, that's it, they're done, now I can take the floor. That is very different from one person to the next. Now, one big study that I did was comparing speakers who had grown up in New York City with speakers who had grown up in California. And repeatedly, what would happen is that New York speakers had a very different idea of how long a pause was normal between turns. It was shorter than the pause, which the Californians thought was normal. So what kept happening is there'd be a pause. The New Yorkers would think the Californians had nothing to say, and so they would fill that pause. And it isn't only a matter of, I want the floor, I'm going to take it, but it often is nobody's talking here. This conversation is running down. I'd better be a good citizen and fill this pause. And this is one of the things about conversational style differences that is most troubling and problematic. When somebody accuses you of bad intentions, when you know your intentions were good, it's very hurtful. It's very upsetting. And all these conversational style differences occur in people that are good friends, even family members, and very often people who are romantic partners. And then it really is troubling because there's a feeling you should understand me if anybody does. And if you are getting the wrong idea about what I mean, there's something wrong with you, there's something wrong with me, or there's something wrong with our relationship. So it can be very threatening, very troubling. So that's differences in pacing and pausing and how long a pause you think is normal between turns. That is really interesting too, because the New Yorkers in that study I did, and, and some of you may have already heard that I am from New York. I'm from Brooklyn. I grew up in Brooklyn, and I was one of the speakers in that conversation. Many of the other New Yorkers would often have very long pauses within their turns, like a dramatic pause. So somebody once said, and then I thought, ah, that explains so many things. So there were pauses there, but you kind of knew from the way they were positioned in the talk that it wasn't, it didn't mean they were done speaking. So that's one example. Another example of style differences is just what you talk about, how personal are the topics that you think are appropriate. Do you ask personal questions or is that intrusive? Many people feel, well, if somebody wants to tell you, they'll tell you. But then other people feel, gee, they're not interested in me. They don't ask any questions. And I have an example there of a couple where their families of origin had these different approaches. The one whose family took the approach, you should ask if you're interested. That person felt your family isn't interested in me. They never ask me anything. And the other side of it was, she's so unfriendly. She doesn't tell me anything. She doesn't talk to us. All these differences come up in all the books I've written. So there's mothers and daughters, sisters, adult families, and friends. And this one was very significant, the one I just described, between friends because some people feel if you're a good friend, you talk about personal things. Other people feel you really shouldn't pry. You really shouldn't ask. Just wait. And if they want to tell you, they'll tell you. And so I use the word ritual, and that's important. Conversation is a ritual. We're not walking dictionaries and grammar books. We don't just utter sentences because they're in the grammar and they're in the dictionary. We use words the way other people use them. 
and we've come to expect, and it's a habit that this is the way we're going to make a decision, or this is the way we're going to let the other person know what our preference is. And we do it automatically. We don't think of it as, this is my conversational ritual. We're just saying what you mean. I love this idea of conversation as a ritual. And again, for me, what was super helpful is just having this word or concept of conversational style and having a label to recognize what this is, what it means and the role it plays in our interactions and in our relationships. I often tell people that we're all speaking different languages and people have gotten really into love languages, but even through our actual words, not even our actions, we are all speaking different languages based on the experiences we've had, our past, the interactions, events, culture, dynamics, et cetera, et cetera. And when I first became really interested in language, it was when I went on a study abroad program for a year. It was a comparative program going to different countries. We went to Tanzania, India, New Zealand, Mexico, and Guatemala. And the most intense culture shock I experienced was within the group itself, which was all a group of students from the United States, because there was just such a difference in communication styles and expectations and implicit messages that there was just so much miscommunication. It was just so fascinating to realize how different everybody was coming to the same table, but with a totally different mindset and a totally different toolkit. And again, speaking a different language, despite being from the same place. And so having that label of conversational style, being able to understand that context through that meaning is extremely helpful. And as you were talking about the importance of this is we have the need to feel heard. And in order to connect with people, we need to feel as though they understand us. And of course, that we understand them. And this can either be something that can enhance our connections to other people, or even in tiny ways can become big ways in that it can totally jeopardize or destroy a connection and oftentimes without either person really realizing why and oftentimes in a completely unintentional way. Again, I just loved learning about the differences from gender to age, region, and culture and the importance that it plays in our everyday lives in many ways that I think most of us don't even realize. And so I thought perhaps we could kind of work our way from the outer circle to the more interior circle through the whole part, seeing things through the lens of ourselves. Because again, bringing it back to that part in the beginning, one of the biggest issues is that we think about the other person. We're not thinking as much about ourselves, but that's kind of the key missing part in a lot of our interactions. And one more small note is I remember reading some research that says in business interactions, for example, a lot of the biggest miscommunications are when people are speaking the same language. But for example, somebody from the US speaking with somebody from Australia or the UK or Ireland, it is in those contexts when people are most under the impression that they must 
be speaking the same language, have the same meaning for things where the miscommunication most commonly arises. And so just, again, this friendly reminder about how nuanced this really is, how complicated, and probably how it's most playing a role in the places we don't think to look for it. I thought we could perhaps work our way from the cross-cultural lens down to kind of the familial lens, which is probably shaped by that cross-cultural lens, and then into a partnership, which would be kind of even more specific since we bring our culture, the things we learn through our family to that relationship. And of course, in mind throughout all of this, really be thinking about ourselves and not only question what other people are doing and intending and what messages they are sending us, but how they might be reacting to the messages we're sending them. Yes, almost every conversation is cross-cultural in some way. If you're just Americans of different ethnic, regional, class backgrounds, those are different cultures. And genders, it's kind of a metaphor that I use that Cross-gender communication is kind of like cross-cultural communication, too. You say meta-messages and all of that? It makes me think like meta-culture. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) All these micro-cultures that are, as you're saying, cross-cultural. Yeah. So just a couple of examples, people who are very close within couples, and all these examples really occurred. A man calls his wife and says, my old friend from high school is in town, so I'm going to have dinner with him Friday night. And she's hurt. She wouldn't just announce to her husband, this is what I'm doing Friday night. She would say something like, my friend is in town. I'd like to have dinner with her Friday night. Would that be convenient for you? Is there anything you were planning that would be inconvenienced by this? And she would be pretty sure he would say no, but she would have shown that she was taking him into account. So she said to him, gee, uh, how come you didn't just asked me how it was going to work instead of just announcing it as a fait accompli. And he said, I can't tell my friend. I need to ask my wife for permission. So for her, (laughs) the question is, how does this affect somebody whose life is intertwined with mine? And for him, it's if I have to ask, then that person has authority over me. And there are so many cases where meta messages could be either about who's up, who's down, or how connected are we? And that was a theme that I developed in the book, You Just Didn't Understand, that I myself had been quite unaware of, but it kept rearing its head as I was doing the research for that book. A very quick example of that, I was walking with a female colleague on college campus and a male colleague, somewhat older, came by and it was one of those slightly chilly fall days and she just to be friendly said, hi, said his name, where's your coat? And he said, thanks, mom, which seemed to her extremely peculiar. What is that? Where did that come from? And if you think about it, it's true that mothers are the ones who often ask children, where's your coat? But it's also a friendly comment that you could make to anybody. So he came at it from the question of authority, who's up, who's down, and she came at it from the question of connection. Well, there were so many conversations among couples where interpretations varied that way. And one of the key ones, 
this has, believe it or not, it's from my book. You just didn't understand that it entered our culture. And that was the quick thing about why don't men stop and ask for directions? When I put that in that book, no one talked about it. It wasn't a part of the conventional wisdom at all. I simply used it as one example. I had asked a woman I was talking to for examples of frustrations that had arisen with her husband. And the example she gave was that he'll never stop and ask for directions. So I put it in because it fit this model of what I was developing at the time. When I asked her why he didn't, she said, well, he says the person you ask won't know either. And he'd rather be lost because of his own ignorance. And he doesn't want to be driven on a wild goose chase by somebody else's ignorance. And there were so many ramifications of this. Quite a few men told me if this is after it became a phenomenon, and I talked about it a lot, and it was written about so much. Many men said, well, if somebody you ask somebody, they and they don't know, they won't tell you they don't know. They'll make something up. And women never told me that they thought if somebody didn't know, they wouldn't want to admit they don't know. So that's a difference right there. And it still reflects that perspective. If you say you don't know, you're putting yourself in a one-down position. If you have the answer, you're putting yourself in a one-up position. One of the points I made in the book was often women will stop and ask directions when they're pretty sure they know. But they'll do that because it's pleasant. You make a fleeting connection with the stranger. You get where you're going and you haven't lost anything. Whereas it seemed like more men than women were inclined to say, to feel it's uncomfortable to put yourself in that one down position to a stranger. Now, I hope you notice that I never said all women do this and all men do that. As soon as we talk about gender, it's so important to emphasize that nothing is true of all women and all men. If for no other reason than that there are so many other influences on our style, many of the ones I've been talking about, ethnic, regional, class, age, and so many others, the kind of work that you do, the uh, gender identity, so, so many other differences. I actually, I loved how in listening to your book, I noticed that because we really at BBXX try to present things not through necessarily the lens of gender, because as you mentioned, there are so many other influences and so many exceptions to every rule or stereotype. And I even found myself relating to some of these, for example, problem solving, which might be considered more of a male thing. I, over the years, have tried to stop doing that depending on who it's with because some people like that. But one of my sisters specifically does not like that. And I spent a couple years where she would call me and she would go off on a rant and then I would try and offer help. And she'd say, I'm not looking for a solution. I just called to be able to rant to you. And so I really, she just would be so angry at me and be like, I just called for you to sit here while I rant. What are you doing? Stop stepping out of, of line. And so I really became acutely aware of, for some people, the power of just being with them, recognizing their emotion and how hard or how difficult or annoying or whatever something might be. But again, knowing your audience and sometimes people want a balance where first you sit with them and recognize them, but they are then looking for some sort of more practical advice or action to go from there. 
I love that example. First of all, I'm glad you picked that up that I never generalize about women and men or any other group. I'm glad you used the word stereotype because it's really, it comes up a lot and it's a very significant concept that I think is worth taking a minute to think about. What is the difference between a stereotype and describing a pattern you've observed? And what happens if the pattern you observe is one that also exists in a stereotype. (laughs) I tell my students, be very careful about using that word. If you have observed something and you've done your research and you can document it, that is not a stereotype. Now, a stereotype is when you have an idea in your mind and you bring it to the interaction and you apply it, not because of anything you observe, but because of what pre-existed in your mind. And so I think that's an important uh, distinction to make because otherwise, if you have a, a research finding that happens to be similar to something that exists as a stereotype, it's almost like putting barriers against your writing about your research. It's like saying, well, that's not a good finding. Have another finding. <laughs> and if we believe in science, then we would say that that's getting in the way of our understanding what's going on in the world. But what you just said is so important and such a good insight that if you're looking for what's right and what's wrong, you're never going to find it. But if you're trying to understand how certain ways of speaking interact with other people's ways of speaking, then you're on the right path. You want to see how your style interacts with theirs. If you're not getting the response you want, then you might consider talking another way. But if you're going to start with what's right and what's wrong, then there's going to be a very small number of people whose styles seem to you right. <laughs> Just those whose styles are are very much like yours. Yeah. And that part about the stereotypes. And again, if we were to kind of resign ourselves to things being fact or this rule versus certain patterns and flexibility within those patterns, depending on the background, we would just be stuck in the beginning where kind of some of us might be starting with expecting the other person to change and not realizing that, okay, different isn't necessarily bad. We are both different. It's not that one person is different from you. It's that you are both different from each other. And it's about navigating those differences. And maybe that's a compromise. Maybe it's just acknowledging those differences, but it's this back and forth. It's a dance. It's very funny. People often ask me, can someone change their conversational style? And when they ask me that, they're usually thinking not that they want to change theirs. They want to send their partner in for repair. (laughs) So it's fascinating to realize though, that you can change another person's way of speaking to you by changing the way you speak to them. Going off of that, how can somebody become more aware and attuned to their own conversational style and again, recognize, kind of put the lens back on themselves in their interactions and observe observe perhaps the effect that they're having on other people in order to even recognize, okay, what are the influences I'm having, what is my own conversational style in order to one, be able to recognize it. So from there to decide, okay, if there's anything that might need to change or how to navigate it with that other person. Yeah. The most important first step is being aware of what these parameters are. And that's what I try to address in that book. I try to 
break it down. Here are the parameters. Here are the ways that conversational styles can differ. So if you want to try doing something different, these are the things you could try doing differently. And just having antenna, just having that perspective, it's amazing how good people are at figuring out themselves how they're going to change things or how they're going to improve relationships, simply realizing that these are possibilities. This issue of how long a pause is normal before starting. If you're talking to somebody and you never get the floor, you might have to just push yourself to start speaking a little more quickly than feels natural. And it may be a surprise to you that actually they do want to stop talking. It's just that they thought you weren't taking the floor when you had the opportunity. The parallel is if you're doing all the talking and you don't want to, you could try stopping and let there be silence. Maybe count to seven before you think you you conclude the other person has nothing to say. I'd better keep filling the uncomfortable silence here. And there too, people have told me it's astonishing if I just stop and wait, they start to talk. (laughs) So those are the kinds of little adjustments that you can make once you're aware of the phenomenon that people who are talking may not want to talk. It may be that they think you're not taking your turn or you get the feeling that someone doesn't want to hear anything you have to say. Maybe they do. It's just that you haven't started talking to give them the uh, impression that you have something you want to say. So that issue of pausing and taking the floor is a very tiny, tiny, tiny difference in conversational style that can have such significant effects on the conversation. In uh, your book, there was another example of these two teachers who were teaching a class together, professors, and the woman, it sounded as though there was perhaps a Q&A at the end of the class and people, the students would ask questions and the man would kind of jump in and the woman didn't feel as though she was being given the chance to answer the questions. And the interaction that pursued in the way things changed when she experimented with something outside of her own kind of default conversational style was really interesting. Yes, I love that example too. So she felt he's hogging the floor. He's doing it all. He's not giving her a chance to do anything. And she was extremely frustrated. Then when it occurred to her, maybe it had to do with this length of pause issue, she decided to push herself to jump in and answer before it felt quite comfortable. And to her astonishment afterwards, he said, boy, that was great. I'm so glad you're doing your part now. So she thought he was wanting to do all the talking and was annoyed at him for it. He thought she was insisting he do it all because she didn't want to do it. So they both ended up happier. I love that. Kind of it becomes a win-win. And sometimes maybe somebody is being rude. Maybe they are trying to dominate the conversation, but sometimes maybe there is a certain discomfort with silence, particularly I think in dating or new interactions. 
certain discomfort with silence. So maybe it's just either giving somebody else the chance, as you said, counting and waiting to talk to see if they choose to share about themselves or jumping in there. What feels like to you jumping the gun to get in could then be a relief to somebody else. And so always realizing that there could be unexpected benefits or at least the other person's intentions could be very different than what you had imagined. Yes. And even the idea of when a pause begins to be a silence is variable. So you said something about discomfort with silence. Some people are going to feel, oh, this is an uncomfortable silence, while the other one is still just waiting for their turn to talk. That's something that is, can differ right there. When do we start to perceive it as a silence? Yeah. So we have a lot of listeners obviously in the United States, but we do have a lot of listeners abroad from all parts of the world, a lot of listeners in Latin America. And so I'd love to have you kind of tie some of these cross-cultural kind of global themes or again, patterns, not necessarily rules, uh, but to give people a bit more context through which they can perhaps identify themselves in some of these patterns and then we can kind of bring it down to the familial level. Yes. So all the kinds of things I was just talking about can happen across cultures. So I talked about indirectness, where you might communicate what you mean, but you don't put it in so many words. And most cultures communicate without articulating exactly what they intend, because they trust the other person to understand what they mean, because they're saying it in the way other people tend to talk in that context. In fact, in many countries of the world, Americans are thought of as being rather childlike. And one of the reasons is because we, in comparison to many other cultures, are relatively more direct. So coming out and saying exactly what you mean is simply rude. That's what children do until they learn the proper way to communicate. But here's an example. There are many cultures in the world where when you're uh, come to somebody's house and they offer you something to eat or drink, it would be extremely rude to accept on the first offer. So you have to say no the first time. And then they offer again and you say no the second time. And on the third offer, it's acceptable to say yes and to take it. Americans tend not to work that way. <laughs> and I say Americans, but as I already said, there are many different cultural influences in the United States. Not all Americans have the same style. But the most common conversational routine in this regard among Americans is you offer. If the person doesn't want it, they say no. If they want it, they say yes, and you move on. There have been visitors to the United States from so many cultures of the world where they go hungry and thirsty because they turn down the first offer expecting they'll get two more and they'll accept on the third, but that never comes because we don't think of it that way. When you think about it, you know, all of these things, it's so clear that you're just dealing with norms and these ways of speaking are just ways that you enact these norms. You don't make up as you go along how to behave. And so then bringing it down to the family level and kind of influences and we could touch briefly on, I found it interesting just to know it, 
that children, for instance, who might be seen as having behavioral issues in school or even cognitive disabilities of some sort or a diagnosis for attention deficit, whatnot, but it could be traced back to simply different conversational styles or norms at home. And so how the family and the home environment and the norms that we grow up with affect or shape our conversational style and then how we then bring that to our relationships, for example, with a partner. I would say that being aware of conversational style can be helpful to every single person in every single context. And absolutely start when kids are small. When boys complain about girls, girls complain about boys, or girls complain about other girls, or boys complain about other boys, I think you can't start early enough to say, well, you got that impression, but maybe that's not what they meant. Let's think about how they might have meant what they said, and let's think about how you might talk differently to get a different response. So I would start at the very young. And definitely parents with children who have various sorts of limitations, and especially if they have uh, trouble reading other kids, then learning how to, what are the cues you could pick up? The sooner you start talking that way, the sooner you'll be giving them tools that they can actually apply. I would love to have you speak a bit to just the role of communication and the importance of that in a partnership. Yes. And I think the word communication itself may not be the most helpful one because so many times people sit down and have communication. They're talking to each other, but they're still not able to really figure out what's going on. In fact, I'll start with an anecdote that maybe this is where the humor comes in. An anecdote, this actually happened uh, when the book You Just Didn't Understand was just out and I was being driven to, actually it was in New York City and I was being driven to a, a, a TV show. And the taxi driver asked what I was going to be doing at this station. And I told him I'd written a book. What's the book about? It's about communication between women and men. And he said, my wife and I have good communication. And then he looked at me in the rear view mirror and he said, but sometimes when she asked me something, I just don't answer. <laughs> and I thought, how can that be good communication if you don't answer? So I asked her, why would you do that? Why wouldn't you answer? And he said, well, sometimes what she says just doesn't make any sense. <laughs> and he gave me an example. He said he was watching the ball game and his wife said to him, what should my brother do? He said, her brother's 35. Why should I tell him what to do? And it captured so many of the patterns, that word that we agreed to use, so many of the patterns that I had written about in the book. First of all, they're spending the evening together. He's watching the ball game. He may be happy that they're spending the evening together. She, I would guess, felt that they should talk. <laughs> and this goes back to the socialization of boys and girls, the way they tend to play with their friends as children. And the pattern that's been observed is that girls are much more likely to spend time talking. And that's what creates their closeness. Your best friend is the one you tell everything to. Boys tend to create their bonds with other boys more by activities. Your best friend is the one you do everything with. And maybe 
the one who will stand up for you if there's a fight. And often there's an assumption that there will be fights. So my interpretation of that first move in that conversation was that she felt the need to talk, not the need, the want. She thought, well, you know, we're here, we're spending the evening, we should talk. There's a certain kind of talk that has been identified, again, it wasn't even my own research identifying this, that many women engage in troubles talk. So a good kind of conversation to have with somebody you're close to is you talk about problems, trouble, trouble, something bothering you, and then you talk about it back and forth, and you feel more connected because you're agreeing. You kind of agree this is the kind of conversation you like to have. Men tend to be less experienced, you might say, with those kinds of conversations. And so if a woman raises an issue about a problem, he may assume the reason she's raising it is that she wants help solving it. And that leads to that other observation that I made in the book, you just didn't understand that got a lot of attention, where a woman might talk about a problem and a man tells her how to solve it. And she's frustrated because that wasn't what she was hoping for. And then he's frustrated because he's thinking, why do you want to talk about it if you don't want to do anything about it? My suspicion was that she didn't have any trouble to talk about, so she figured she'd talk about her brothers. And women often do that. We talk about other friends, relatives, and it can be a way of kind of thinking about life and what would you do if you had a problem like this, and it's just a topic that's interesting to talk about. Because he wasn't used to talking about troubles as a form of just a way to talk to be close, he figured that she's asking him to tell her brother what to do. And the last piece that is so fascinating to me was his saying, her brother's 35. Why should I tell him what to do? The idea that you're giving advice to someone puts them in a one-down position. Whereas his wife, I would guess, was feeling talking about her brother's problems is a sign of caring. It connects her to her brother. <laughs> we all, when we talk to each other, have to balance these different dynamics. Is this way of talking bringing us closer or pushing us farther apart? And is this way of talking putting one of us in a one-up or a one-down position? And it's often the case that a woman and a man will walk away from the same conversation where she's asking did this bring us closer or push us farther apart? And he's asking, did this put one of us in a one-up or a one-down position? They're both there. It's not like one's right and what's wrong. One's wrong. It's what you focus on. So it was all there in that one brief conversation with the taxi driver on the way to the TV studio. <laughs> in that little anecdote you mentioned, there were a couple terms that I would love to have you clarify for people who might not be familiar with them yet. So Troubles Talk was the first one. So if you could elaborate a bit more, what is Troubles Talk? What role does it play in relationships? And then kind of the differences that we see across different individuals and different kind of patterns that might be there. So what is Troubles Talk and what is its role? How does it work? among girls and women, and how does that tend to differ among boys and men, and then what problems does that cause when we talk to each other? The 
term Troubles Talk was actually first used, I think, by a researcher named Gail Jefferson. It was not my own term. And what she found was that in recording conversations among women friends, frequently they were talking about troubles, problems that they had, things that were bothering them. And conversations between men and their friends tended not to include that kind of talk, troubles talk. Um, and that, so what role is it playing between women that it's not doing between men? And it does get back again to that basic difference of the role of talk. Women often feel if you can keep talking about it, then the relationship is working. And many men feel it's not working if we have to keep working it over by talking. <laughs> I often use the term message and meta-message. So the message is the meaning of the words. But meta-message is meaning that you get because you said these words in this way at this time. So there's a meta-message for many women of closeness in talking. Because we can talk about these things, that sends a message that we care about each other, we're interested in each other, we're investing in this relationship, we're trying to work it out. Because boys and men have not used talk in that way, and they tend to look for another meaning. And it often can be the opposite meaning. And sometimes it's just uh, wanting to be helpful. So you get this very classic conversation where a woman is suggesting, talking to a guy about a problem and he tells her how to solve it and she's frustrated because she didn't want a solution. When a woman talks about a problem, she doesn't want a solution. It's actually not true. I don't think it's correct that women don't want a solution. They just don't want it right off the bat. So if you listen in on how women's conversations about this tend to go, typically a woman might say, oh, you know, I had this problem, she'll describe it. And the friend might say, oh, I know just what you mean, the same thing happened to me. But then she might say, and so what did you do then? And then what did he do? And well, what are you thinking you might do? And what do you think he might do if you do that? They together explore the ins and outs of the problem. So on the one hand saying, oh, I know just how you feel, the same thing happened to me. That sends a meta message of rapport in saying we're the same. And that's something that women often value. And you hear it among little girls a lot. Oh, the same, I have this, oh, I have it too, oh, we're the same. And that makes them feel connected, but also the meta message of wanting to talk about it, taking the time to listen to your friend's problem, taking the time to ask her questions, listen to the her answers. On one hand, it shows this meta message of caring that you're willing to take that time. And also you're getting the information and helping her work through the information to be helpful, to come to a solution. But you need that information to know what solution to give. And that, I think, is why it can be so frustrating to a woman if she starts tries to start that kind of conversation with a guy and he gives her the solution. The problem is partly that it cuts short the conversation. Yeah, I've started asking people and trying to figure out, okay, are we in empathy mode or are we in problem-solving mode? And sometimes we're going to incorporate both of those. But 
knowing your audience and knowing what they want to get out of it and trying to identify that so I can better serve them and not just go guessing and end up irritating the person. (laughs) Well, I love that uh, you're saying that because it reinforces what I said at the beginning, that the processes, the parameters that are important, that you can think you're just communicating, but in fact, you may have different ideas about how to say what you mean and what to how to communicate in this situation. And it may be a pattern that goes by gender, often it does, but it may not be. So once you know that pattern, that's going to help you out, whether you're talking to a guy, a woman, a sister, a parent, a friend, <laughs> um, all these different relationships. So could you speak a bit to some of the research in kids, for example, alludes to a lot of this research and some of these patterns that continue later on in life in terms of how women tend to connect with women and what kind of the valuable commodity in those relationships is and how men tend to connect with other men and what the most valuable commodity in those relationships are and kind of how different that can be. Yes, I'm really glad I'm remembering to make this point. That's another thing that I feel I didn't explain fully enough in the book you just don't understand that I try to clarify in in later books. To say that women tend to focus on the connection and men tend to focus on the status can be a little misleading because if you both agree that negotiating status is important, that can be a way of connecting. And girls can be very competitive about connection. Who's closer to the popular girl? Who knows the popular girl's secrets? (laughs) Because your best friend is the one you tell everything to. You can give evidence that you're close to somebody by showing that they've confided in you. And that also then gives you power over them. So there the status comes in again. What are you going to do with that knowledge? One woman, this is from my book about women friends. A woman said to me, when I tell a friend uh, something personal about me, it's like saying, here's a little piece of me. That means I like you. And I think that's such a lovely way to put it. But then the question arises, what's she going to do with this piece of you (laughs) that she now has? So yeah, I'll go back to the research on how boys and girls tend to use language in their friendships and how they can differ in the impact of some of that. So those who have studied children at play have observed that girls tend to play in smaller groups and their social life often will circle around a best friend. And they will spend a lot of time sitting and talking. Of course, they run around and play too, but they, relative to the boys, they will spend more time sitting and talking. And often it's telling secrets. (laughs) It's very common to see little girls where one is whispering in the other's ear. And sometimes, especially with really little ones, what they're whispering is not all that important. And that's intriguing to me because part of what they're doing is demonstrating that they're close. (laughs) You can see them whispering so you know that they're being close, being intimate. And girls' groups tend to not talk in ways that obviously put themselves up relative to the group, and they don't tell each other what to do. A girl who tells the other girls what to do often will be called bossy, and the other girls won't want to play with her. Boys groups are quite different. They tend to play in larger groups, and often it's the activity that's central. As I mentioned, your best friend is the one you do everything with. Now, the boys, of course, are talking also, but often it's 
competitive talk about who's best at what. And the boy who tells the other boys what to do and gets it to stick, he's the leader. His status goes up if he can tell others what to do. This really jumped out at me when I was first starting this sort of work that girls were calling other girls bossy and women will often call other women bossy. Uh, Younger sisters often call older sisters bossy. (laughs) And I wondered about that because I didn't see girls telling other girls what to do more than boys were telling other boys what to do. It seems to be the way the girls and boys react to that that is different because the norms of the social groups differ. I guess the way I would put it is there are different ways of talking to create similar ends. So they're both creating friendship. They're both creating connection. But for the girls, it's more focused on talk. And it's also a value placed on being the same, which often means no one's higher than the others. That's a big part of it. A girl who seems she's better than the others. That's negative in girls' groups. A very interesting observation. This goes back a number of years ago, and I was being interviewed about the book, You Just Didn't Understand, and the interviewer was a guy, and he told me that he was, had for a long time had been coach of boys' teams, and for the first time was coaching a girls' team. And he said when he walked into the team, any team, he had been used to being able immediately to see who the best athletes were, because in boys' teams, The ones who are the best athletes show it off and the others defer to him. He wasn't able to figure that out in the girls group for a very long time because the girls were expending a lot of energy not to show it off if they were better. (laughs) They were spending a lot of energy kind of trying to look like they were no better than the others. And there are so many examples of that. You see it among adult women all the time one of the first women captains, pilots for a commercial airline. She talks about how difficult it was being a first woman in that role. But then she says, not only the men, the other pilots didn't like it, but the flight attendants didn't like it. They thought, what do you think, you're better than us? And it's something that I hear over and over among girls and women. When I talked about this, one woman told me her granddaughter was crying because she won the spelling bee. And her best friend told her, we can't be friends anymore. Oh, man. Well, you know, in some ways it seems like, oh, it could be such a great thing. Collaboration versus competition, but then at the same time can be very restrictive and a bit damaging if you go one way versus the other. And it's so important not to overinterpret this idea of connection versus status. And I said, girls are very competitive about who knows what and who knows first. Sometimes you'll people will send a group email because if you tell one person first, they're going to be offended. Or sisters will have a conference call <laughs> because if you tell one sister before the other, then that other one is going to be offended and the one you told first might lord it over her. <laughs> And so also, I just wanted to reiterate this other factor, kind of that there might be inherent differences, but also the cultural level and how in children, boys and girls are treated differently from the beginning. I think people nowadays are trying to do that less and less, but some of the 
kind of sociological or influences in the ways that we behave and talk to or verbally and non-verbally treat boys versus girls? Absolutely. Boys and girls are treated differently from the day they're born. There was a study I read many years ago. If they showed people a picture of a baby crying and asked, why is this baby crying? If the baby was had a blue hat, so they thought it was a boy, they said he's angry. And if it was a pink hat, so they thought it was a girl, they'd say she's unhappy. The same cry, the same baby. <laughs> Wow. And, you know, as we know, anger in women is not appreciated. (laughs) Showing vulnerability and sadness in men is not appreciated. So these expectations start very, very early. And these playgroups of boys and girls exercise very forceful socialization on the kids. They learn what their friends will accept and what their friends will dislike them for or even reject them for. And another interesting pattern of kids and the effect is when girls don't like a girl, they will often lock her out, not let her play. Now, and this is one of the things that's often talked about in the context of mean girls. Some of that is explicable if you realize that girls talk about personal things and private things to friends they like. So if you don't like this friend and you don't want her to be a friend, You don't want her there when you're talking about private things. And if boys are focused more on activities, well, you need a certain number of boys for the team. You might treat them badly, but you let them play. So this pattern of just locking out girls they don't like is more common among girls and women. And it does lead to different sensitivities that girls and women are more attuned in a way to being left out whereas boys and men seem to be more attuned to being put down because those are the ways that the groups punish kids that are out of favor. Well, I want to make sure that we have time to touch on this idea of kind of connection versus weakness and this concept of sympathy as condescending, which was one of the laugh out loud moments for me in terms of these differences where one person might be extending what they think is an opportunity for connection and the other person interprets it as being condescending or this moment of disconnection. And so speaking a bit to that, the kind of connection versus weakness, sympathy as being either an opportunity for bonding or a seen as being condescending. Yes, a couple of examples of that. One very brief, but very telling. A woman was talking to her husband. He was talking about um, some illness he had, some issue. And she said, oh, I know the same thing happens to me. And he said, stop putting me down. (laughs) And she felt, what universe are you living in? How could I possibly have been putting you down? I was just telling you I understand And I think the way they finally came to understand it, or maybe it was just my interpretation, he felt that she was taking away his uniqueness. And by saying, oh, yeah, the same thing happens to me, he was saying, what you've experienced is really not that big a deal, because I have it too. And one woman told me, she said, my women friends don't let you be different. She said, if my friend says something's a problem and I say, that's not a problem for me, she'll say, stop putting me down. 
you have to say, oh yeah, I know you feel, I feel the same way. The same thing happened to me. Because if you don't, it's like saying I'm better than you. Again, getting back to that issue, that uh, sore spot for so many women that you are not supposed to act like you're any better. In the book, didn't it also say though that men tend to minimize other men's problems as a way of saying, oh, it's not that bad and that there was more of kind of one-upping, I've been through that, but worse. Yeah, that's right. That's a case where the boy was putting himself down in a way, saying, I feel, I could think the specific one maybe that you're thinking about. He was saying that his girlfriend was telling him he drinks too much. And his male friend said, oh, you know, that's not true. Uh, Sometimes you're funny when you're off your butt. So by minimizing what his girlfriend was saying was a problem. It's like pulling him back up because he had been, in a sense, putting himself down. So I think that's why it worked that way there. Mm -hmm. And that's where I'm told, and it took men to explain this to me, I didn't understand myself until I talked at length to guys and had them explain to me what how they reacted to things, that an excess of sympathy can feel condescending and patronizing. Oh, you poor thing. Oh, I'm so sorry to hear you got this terrible grade on your test. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Is that kind of trying to remind you that you got a terrible grade? All these things can have so many levels of meaning. And so showing sympathy, showing concern for many people would be a positive thing could actually be seen as a negative thing because you're calling attention to something that doesn't make the person look good. Mm -hmm. And then kind of lastly, there was this, I felt like the car, this area, this space of the car uh, became this kind of metaphor for these different examples. Um, You know, there was an example of a woman when she was driving and would stop the car, suddenly would reach out her arm and kind of the different reaction of the passenger if it was a man versus if it was a woman and the implied norms of who should be driving in the first place or when men were driving on their own in different cars at the stop sign and you know there's, okay, you wave the person on. If it's a woman, then they'll go ahead. But if it's another man, they'll sit there waving back and insisting. <laughs> I and love so it. Just... <laughs> Isn't it fascinating? There was actually a cartoon of a New Yorker at one point somebody in the car driving and someone wanting to cross the street and the guy driving has his scowl on his face and saying, I don't care how many times he weighs me on, I am not going to (laughs) go. Because his feeling that he's telling me what to do. He's telling me to drive. He can't tell me what to do. I'll tell him what to do. I'm going to wait here until he crosses the street. (laughs) It's this double meaning of status and connection that the same way of speaking, behaving, acting can be seen on the level of caring or we're connected or can be seen on the level of who's up, who's down. So being protective in a way puts you in a one-up position so that when a person who's driving suddenly hits the brake and puts out your arm to protect the person in the passenger seat so that they won't lurch forward, Of course, your arm is probably not strong enough to really hold a person back, but it's a way of saying, I'm sorry I put you in this position. I want to let you know that I'm watching out for you. And quite a few men told me they were angered by that because 
they felt that the person in the driver's seat who's being protective means that they're, again, like a parent to a child. They're in that one opposition. This comes up with mothers and daughters constantly. The biggest complaint that I heard from daughters was my mother's critical. The biggest complaint I heard from mothers was I can't open my mouth. She takes everything as criticism. And often when they told me the specifics, it was I was showing caring, I was being protective, I was trying to help. And I would point out, well, if you're offering help, then that person is probably doing something wrong. <laughs> if you're offering advice, they are doing something wrong, that they need advice. So both those messages really are there, and it's just the one that you tend to focus on. Yeah, absolutely. Depends on which way you look at it. I would love to hear some of your, what you feel are some of the most important takeaways with these differences specifically between men and women, but obviously there's overlap. There are exceptions. There are different people of different genders and sex on each side. So kind of from the individual perspective in a partnership, what are some of the most important things to remember and to practice? What I believe is the most important is to realize there's not one right way of communicating and that words can mean more than one thing and can be functioning on more than one level. So if you think this words can only mean one thing, and I say I feel criticized and you say, no, I wasn't criticizing, I was just helping, then one of us has to be wrong if you realize that words can have both these meanings at the same time, you can then acknowledge the other person's experience and response and still hold on to yours. That You don't have to say, oh yeah, I was completely wrong to have felt that way, or yeah, I was completely wrong to have talked that way. And people are much more likely to change if they realize that the other person could be right and you could be right too. And so it's more a matter of, what effect are these words having? And if this isn't the effect I want, how could I talk differently to have a different effect? Uh, and if you think about it in terms of conversational style rather than right way and wrong way, you'll have a lot better chance of figuring things out. And I guess the other thing would be this concept of message and meta message that often people end up arguing on the level of message. What did this word mean? What did that word mean? That's not the word you said. Yeah, you did say that word. If you move to the level of meta-message, which is often the one that got your goat, <laughs> yeah, I, you did say that, but you're saying it made me feel whatever you want to go on and say so that you don't end up struggling with dictionary definitions of words, <laughs> but can get more to what really you re were reacting to emotionally. One of the biggest takeaways from our conversation earlier was really understanding that the way somebody is speaking can just be a reflection of the way that you're speaking to them. Yes, 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 yes. Another universal we didn't have time to talk about that Nothing is said in isolation. Everything is a reaction to something else. And often when there's a struggle, you're punctuating <laughs> the series of interactions in different ways. If somebody snaps at you, you think they're a bad person. If you snap at them, 
you know you're reacting to something they said. <laughs> right. We judge other people on their words and behaviors, and we judge ourselves based on our intentions, which isn't necessarily a fair way. And then also kind of just the importance of, I would say, because we can't know much about, we are not good at assuming things. We make a lot of assumptions, and I think a lot of times they aren't accurate. So taking the opportunity to talk about these things and finding out, again, whether it's a romantic relationship or another kind of relationship, particularly if there are certain differences between cultures or sex, gender, these different things that might come into play, finding out what operating system somebody is working with? What is the currency? What are the foundational building blocks of bonding, of connection? Is connection based on, like we talked about, time spent talking? Is it based on acts and behaviors or I guess like shared time together doing things? Is it influenced by status? Can it be damaged by sympathy or enhanced by sympathy? And really trying to work to understand in yourself, but particularly knowing your audience and not guessing and assuming, but trying to find out really what makes them tick. And I'm just, I guess with operating system, I'm going back to like, you can't have compatible technology if you're not running on the same operating system and trying to find the common ground and the common understanding to work together. Because after all, particularly in a partnership, it's teamwork and you need to make sure you're playing the same sport here. <laughs> I would leave people with the idea that if you understand the parameters on which conversational style can differ, and we only <clears throat> had a chance to turn only a few today, if you know the parameters on which conversation styles differ, then you know what things you could try to do differently. Yep. And how much is just different person to person? So from childhood, as you mentioned, certain things at home can shape these conversational styles. The children can pick up on things. The parents might not realize they are communicating them. I would love to have you speak a bit more to that influence. And I think so much of our adulthood is understanding the things we learned unknowingly when we were younger and the ways our parents influenced us for better or for worse. And this particularly is relevant to your work as you've just come out with your latest book, Finding My Father, his century-long journey from World War I Warsaw and my quest to follow, to kind of segue into, again, the ways that our parents, whether it's through conversational style, are influencing us, but also the other ways that these familial connections play a role in our life and the ways that we can kind of dive deeper into understanding them and understanding these people, our parents who have shaped us. When people talk to me about frustrations that they have with the, even people that they're very close to, often they trace it to their parents. My mother taught me, and this is one thing somebody said actually that I quote in a book about women's friendships. My mother taught me, be very careful about giving any personal information to anyone who plays bridge or gets her hair cut every week. Because when they run out of things to talk about, they're going to start talking about you. So this was someone who she said from her mother learned never talk about personal things, even with somebody you're close to, unless they volunteer it. Well, 
that actually had turned into a problem with people that she was close to. They felt that she was not really being a good friend. They found out that something was going on in her life she hadn't told them about, and they felt hurt by that. Asking questions, offering personal information, rate of speech, how much expression of anger you're comfortable with. Are friends people that you can get angry with? Or are friends people that you would never express anger to? There are families in which people are always yelling and getting mad at each other. And there are families in which you never raise your voice. And both of these are patterns that other people might have a very different view of yours. So I think of someone who's, this was a woman and her husband was constantly trying to pick fights with her. (laughs) And she felt that arguing was unacceptable. He finally pushed her so far that she lost her temper. And he said, ah, I feel so much closer to you now. So all of these things are things that we learn from our families growing up. And of course, families aren't monolithic either. There may be one parent that has one style, another parent that has another style. And personality plays a role here too. Introvert, extrovert, as an example. What I write about in in my book called Finding My Father is how when I was a kid, my father was almost never home because he was either away at work. He was also very active in politics. So he might be doing political work if he wasn't earning a living work. But he was the parent that I really felt connected to, the one that I thought understood me. The way I put it in the book, the strongest presence that I felt in the house was his absence. So when he was older, and I was very lucky that he lived to be almost 98, he died just a couple weeks short of his 98th birthday, and he was sharp until the end. When he retired at 70, the was almost 30 years left after he retired. He loved talking about the past. And in particular, he loved talking about his childhood in Poland. He was born in Warsaw, and he was born into a Hasidic family in Warsaw. He came to the United States in 1920. He was born in 1908. So he lived through World War I in Warsaw. And he had a, a very amazingly detailed memories of his very young childhood. I actually wrote a play comparing his memories of his childhood in Warsaw with my memories of my childhood with him. The play was actually produced and then it was included in Best Short Plays that year. Uh, And I realized after all that had happened that all the memories in the play were things that had happened to him before he was six. It's how detailed his memory of his childhood were. So for me, talking to my father about his past was a way of connecting to him and also understanding him better, as well as coming to understand myself better because of his influence on me. So a few examples. My father loved to write, and I think I got that from him. I don't know if it was genes or just uh, emulating him, but if he had something important to say, he would be much more comfortable writing you a long letter. And I started writing him letters when I was seven. (laughs) We had a typewriter in the house and I would type letters to him as well as poems and stories. When he was talking about his past, he often was talking about his work life, jobs he had held. That was a very big part of his sense of his life was really all the work that he had done one of the biggest regrets of his life was having left a job that he later felt he should not have left. And it helped me understand the sense of regret that I felt. I felt it was kind of a shadow in our house growing up. 
and maybe help me understand why I have a tremendous tendency to regret. I know many people do. It's not that unusual, but I think it's a little extreme. And I understood it a lot better, realizing where my father's sense of regret came from. He also never showed anger. I think that is in some ways related to my avoiding anger. Again, these are all things that many people have. It's not that unusual. But he left me journals that he had kept when he was very young. And I hadn't realized how much his life at home with his mother and sister, he had no father, was marked by angry outbursts on the part of both his mother and his sister. And I think that's why he went in the other direction and avoided any kind of expression of anger. So all things like that, if you understand where the influence was on your parents, and then you can better understand how they influenced you. So for me, writing that book was partly filling this gap that I felt, maybe to be dramatic about it, a kind of hole in my heart that my missed my father so much when I was young. And he was the parent that I felt that connection to, and he was the one that was never there. So just having all that time with him, reading all about his life, memories that he left, papers that he left, I think he kept every piece of paper that came into his life, was a way of filling that hole. But also, I realized that his life spanned the entire 20th century and reflected so many of the major events of that century. World War I, immigration, coming to this country at the tail end of the massive migration from Eastern and Southern Europe, Greeks, Italians, and Eastern European Jews, that ended in 1924 because it was an era of tremendous anti-immigrant sentiment as we're experiencing now. And so that's when, hard to believe, when my father came in 1920 was the last year there were no limits on immigration. If you didn't have an eye disease that they picked up in Ellis Island, and he didn't even go through Ellis Island because he came second class. They did that in Antwerp before getting on the ship. You just got your ticket and you came. And that started to change in 1921 and changed drastically in 1924. That's why that massive influx of immigrants stopped in that year, 1924. So it was this era of World War I of massive immigration, and then the Depression. My father quit high school at 14 and went to work in a factory because he had no father and he was supporting his mother and sister. But he managed to, without a high school diploma, <laughs> take equivalency tests, educate himself at night, went to law school, became a lawyer, passed the bar, but it was the Depression. And so it took him from the time he passed the bar to he actually was able to make a living as a lawyer 30 years. Another explanation for this sense of regret that was so palpable in our house and in his recollections of his life. I think one I will say, you mentioned you might have gotten your love for writing from your father and I I've really been blown away by the amount of writing you've done. And now with the mention of the play, it's just thoroughly impressive. And I'm excited to continue to dive into all of the research and the writing that you've done. But then in thinking of, again, these ways that his experiences could have shaped you, and you mentioned regret, for example, and I'm not sure if 
that led him to then push you harder to follow your career and stick with something in order to compensate for the fact that perhaps he felt as though he hadn't done that. And then on the receiving end, you mentioned having adopted things from him. But again, some people can do that where we adopt and kind of absorb these same practices or messages or behaviors from our parents or can go the opposite direction where we try and overcompensate for something that we don't like, whether that was instead of feeling a lot of regret going the other way and having, you know, the no regrets mentality and kind of not thinking twice about anything just to try and overcome what you might have seen as an obstacle. So constantly being aware of these things that we've passed on. And then I loved the fact that you had this writing from him in these journals, in these letters. I'm not sure many people have that opportunity, particularly today when not as much is written on pen and paper. I often wonder, will the computer hard drive or is somebody's phone still be compatible? It's going to be like finding a cassette tape. And if people don't have the proper technology to even be able to read it, how will these messages get passed on? And thinking about how kind of analog versus digital is going to influence this and wondering at the same time too, it's interesting to think if something were to happen to us, what would people find? What messages, what stories, what would they be able to find? I think on a certain end, I don't know if people want someone to go through all their stuff, but on the other end, you also don't want your stories and your experiences and your lessons learned to be lost. So how can we consciously communicate those to other people from logistically in what format to emotionally what would we convey and what do we want to kind of leave as cliche as it might sound as our legacy? That's so insightful. It's such a good point. And yeah, I mean, maybe this is, I'm the last generation (laughs) that has everything on paper. I do want to point out, my father did not at all encourage me to have a career. (laughs) Both my parents had only one desire for me, and that was to get married. (laughs) And they were quite frustrated that I put that off, especially my mother, but my father too. I often say about my mother that she didn't approve until I was on Oprah. (laughs) Then she could brag to her friends and it was something she understood. At the hair salon and playing Bridge Weekly. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but no, my father did not in any way push me to have a career. He thought I should be a teacher because of all the time you get off. (laughs) I mean, it's not wrong. Summer vacation sounds amazing, but I'm also glad that you on your own found that inside yourself to push yourself to have this incredible career. Yeah, I would say in a way, I'm quite certain that it was observing him. I was emulating him in that for sure. He had a huge work ethic. (laughs) Uh, He worked tremendously hard his entire life, starting when he was 14 and he quit high school to support his mother and sister. And that's why he was never home because he I was always working so hard and working extra jobs. And so I did get it from him, but not because he made any effort to <laughs> to instill it in me just by watching. <laughs> yeah. I love to give actionable advice throughout these interviews. So I'd love to kind of end this stage of the interview by 
seeing if you have any actionable advice to offer to the listeners in terms of, again, how to notice these things, whether it's what you've learned from your parents, intentional ways of connecting with them, understanding their story so that you can understand your own or any kind of examples for how to either think about how you want to leave your own legacy and the stories you want to tell and the ways to communicate them or advice for how to connect with other people. Yes, it seems almost a um, truism to say you can often learn more by listening than anything else. Many older people really are looking for an opportunity to talk about their lives because they're at a stage in their lives where they're looking back and thinking about it. It's important to realize that's not true for everybody. My mother had no interest in talking about her her childhood past. She liked to talk about certain aspects of her past, like meeting my father and their courtship in their early days of marriage, for example. But she had no interest in talking about her childhood and she didn't remember much about it. So I think it's important to meet people where they are most comfortable. So some people will be more comfortable if you're doing something with them and then just have casual conversation while you're doing things. Other people will be quite comfortable just sitting down, facing you across the table or across from the couch (laughs) to the chair and ask questions and you answer them or you ask questions and they answer them. This also, by the way, is very helpful for family members. Parents often trying to understand what's going on in their kids' lives sometimes don't just listen enough because as soon as you hear a little bit and you've got ideas about how you need to help them, it might be better to just listen and you hear them saying things that make you raise the hair on the back of your head, but you don't say anything so that they'll tell you more. <laughs> that sometimes is effective So sometimes it's just a matter of time and being willing to spend enough time with somebody without doing other things that they then feel comfortable to start talking. And maybe it's never too late to write down some of your own thoughts and impressions and maybe try even writing it on paper. Sometimes uh, people say that they find it easier to write on paper. And you can always go back to the screen if you find that's better. But sometimes it's just hard. We're all so busy. We've got so much going on. Things are happening so fast that we just don't make the time to talk to people. And now, of course, in these days, you may not be able to be in their physical presence. So it may be telephone. And maybe you want to do that rather than email. Although some people will tell you more on email. So it's all about just being flexible and realizing that some things work great with some people. Others work great with others but just set it up so that the time you'll have made time to do it and it won't be too late when you realize you had all those questions you didn't ask. Absolutely. I love the phrase you used. You can often learn more by listening. I think that's extremely true and often, you know, back and forth. But that idea too, one of my favorite expressions is you don't have time for what you don't make time for. So intentionally creating, scheduling, blocking out that time, not just in terms of quantity, but in terms of quality. Like you said, bringing your focus, leaving distractions aside, whether that's with ourself or with another person and kind of intentionally creating that space and that opportunity. 
Because if you don't create the opportunity for it, how will that connection or conversation ever arise? And lastly, that part about meeting people where they're at and the importance of understanding the context, understanding the person, but also understanding where you're at. Because if you don't understand where you yourself are at, how are you supposed to know how to get to where they are? And you won't quite be able to meet them where they're at. So thank you so much for joining us today. And I look so much forward to diving into the rest of your books and hopefully continuing this conversation. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for inviting me on. Thank you so much to each and every one of you for tuning in to listen to our show. If you like what you learned and you know someone who might also like listening, please do share this podcast. You can also feel free to reach out to us anytime if you'd like to submit questions, requests for experts to have on the show, or if you'd like to share your positive feedback or constructive criticism. We'd love to hear what you think. It's the only way we can learn and grow along with you. Be sure to check out our website, follow us on Instagram at bbxx.world, and subscribe to the Book Club newsletter where we send out even more resources to help you dive even deeper to the topics that we bring to you on the show. Once again, we encourage you to take what we discuss on this show and apply it in your everyday life. Because remember, better relationships equals better life.